Hi, and welcome back. I'm Patrick Polk, and you're listening to The Rules of Investing. This week's guest on the podcast is Warren Robertson, Analyst and Portfolio Manager at Lazard Asset Management. Warren has spent nearly 20 years at Lazard covering domestic and global equities, and around 15 years ago, he helped start one of Australia's first dedicated infrastructure funds. In today's episode, we discuss some unique benefits that come from investing in infrastructure equities, how he avoids the dreaded value trap, and why they're avoiding North American utilities altogether. Finally, if you're loving the rules of investing, why not tell someone about it? Pick your favourite episode and send it to a friend, or just head on over to iTunes and hit subscribe. Either way, you're helping to increase the profile of the podcast, and therefore, the quality of the guests that I can bring to you. Well, that's it for now. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Warren. It's good to have you on. Thanks, Pat. Good to be here. While some of the guests that I speak to do actually oversee multiple strategies, from what I can tell, it actually seems that you've got a pretty active role in portfolio management across the the global, the domestic and the infrastructure portfolios. I imagine that must throw up some pretty unique challenges. How do you stay on top of all that? Yeah, look, it creates um, unique challenges is probably a nice way to put it. It, it keeps me busy and keeps me entertained. I was, uh, had a chat yesterday with one of the larger researchers of one of the dealer groups in the, uh, domestically, and, um, and and he sort of saw the, the 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 good part of it, which is that you know it, it keeps you it keeps you active and keeps you looking at different things, which you know exercises the mind, and there's always a a, a good place to start. Um, so yeah, so I've looked after uh, Australian equities at Lazard now for around tw- 20 years. Um, we started the infrastructure fund now uh, over 15 years ago, and in the last five to six years, we uh, branched global infrastructure into a global equity franchise. So yep, I keeps me busy. Um, there's some, there's a couple of stocks that actually go across all three strategies. So uh, so that makes my life easier. I get three ticks in the box when I do one bit of work, but. Um, yeah, no, I don't. Uh, I, I don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, what am I going to do today? I've always got something <laughs> on the to-do list. I can imagine, yeah. And of course, not just a jack of all trades either. I notice that your global listed infrastructure fund is actually looks to be the top performing infrastructure fund of its type in the world over five years, which I don't normally talk about people's fund performance on the show, but I was pretty impressed to see that. So um, congratulations on that outstanding record. Yeah, no, it's, um, look, we, we, we're really proud of the record, proud of the record across all three strategies, frankly, the, the infrastructure one particularly so. Uh, it, it, we were one of the founders in that space. The bragging rights are either ours or Macquarie's as to who set up the who had the first client, who set up the first commingled vehicle. But um, yeah, it's been a it's been a good story. We've we we try and take quite active investment decisions within a space that is predictable and in a space that we think is worthy of investment for all investors. And you know, it's a it's an it's an asset class that gets some interest from from retail investors at times, but we think it's definitely one for retirees and that they should. Uh, arguably consider for investment. It, it, today, as with all investment markets, frankly, just be very careful, tread cautiously. Markets have had a very good period now for over a decade and um, we think you've got to be very selective about the investment decisions that you make within various asset classes. So probably the, the key theme across all three strategies I'm running today is that uh, being concentrated is not exactly increasing your risk, we think it's actually decreasing your risk than, uh, than to be in naively invested in uh, broad indices because markets are broadly expensive and you need to understand the stocks that you own and within each one of those stocks, um, just not making heroic assumptions but conservative assumptions around valuations is really important normally and across investment cycles but particularly so today. Well, I think you touched on it a little bit there but just briefly could you give us you know maybe say one two minutes on what makes you tick as an investor what's your investment philosophy yes sure look i I think it's and everyone's an accident of time and place um to some extent and 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 my experience in investment markets um started gosh 
more than 25 years ago now um, as a young accountant back in Canberra when uh, one of the partners was sort of wandering around the office one evening and saw me still doing some work on a tax return and said, right, you're coming with me. Uh, we're about to go to Adelaide and to privatise one of the first uh, infrastructure assets in Australia. And so that was my first real taste of, um, of infrastructure investing. That business ended up uh, being bought by uh, Boral. It was then spun out uh, through Origin and into, into Investor and is now owned by uh, the CKI group. So uh, I think it's important to understand where, where my investing uh, started from a professional perspective. So um, I've always been a fan of infrastructure and predictable businesses. and. In essence, what I've learned over the years is that, you know, as much as we try and complicate life, uh, my job as an investor is to really try and basically do two things. Um, that is pick a, an earnings number and pick a multiple that you should apply to it or, or pick a, a series of cash flows and pick a discount rate that you should apply to those. If you can find a group of investments that have more predictable earnings, more consistent cash flows, you're actually making your job as an investor much easier in terms of arriving at that valuation. And, and that, I think, is in essence the overriding philosophy that I've had throughout my investing career. Try and um, be conservative around the numbers that you, you forecast, but pick businesses that you think you understand um, really well and then try and be confident around the numbers that you can predict um, knowing that you're never going to know everything 100% and, um, and, then, and then apply a, a multiple or discount rate that's conservative. And if you can buy a business based on a valuation that is like that and you think you're getting decent upside, then you've really sort of lined the chips up on your, on, uh, to, to, to your advantage. So I think that's the, that's the, the, you know, the, be the basis around which I've uh, tried to, to, to build my uh, investment experience. Yeah, that's really interesting. A lot of the conversations that I've had here in the past, particularly on the subject of valuation, we've discussed the fact that it is so hard when you're valuing a business to predict what cash flows are going to be in two, three, five years time. So by focusing on those more predictable businesses, I can definitely see how that would give you an advantage. But I imagine you've probably developed a few kind of rules of thumb for your investing over the years. What have you found that applies well both across the listed infrastructure space and more broadly equities? Yeah, I think probably the, the, the number one rule that we've, we've had, you know, around the guiding philosophy of trying to be conservative and, and trying to build a margin of safety into our valuations, I think one of the the, the real guiding rule, if you like, or, or what we or what is actually known as the golden rule. So a bunch of economists came up with a, a, a theorem that actually plays incredibly well if you're a, a strict, you know, valuation-based investor like like I am, and that is the golden rule, which really, in essence, says that risk-free rates will equal GDP growth, and so nominal risk-free rates will equal long-term nominal GDP growth and it's it's a rule that's held uh, reasonably well over the long term in developed economies it, it, it's that rule um, struggles to hold in emerging markets and so and so it, you know in essence what it says is if you think that the US economy um, will uh, have two percent inflation which is the Federal Reserve target um, if you think that in the long run GDP real GDP growth will be three percent because there's a mixture of population and productivity changes and so that means that essentially that the real economy the the, the economy will grow in nominal terms I should say at about five percent per annum that that world exists where you have risk-free rates growing at five percent uh, reaching five percent as well so the anchoring of those two numbers is so critically important to valuations. And, and the reason is that essentially, go back to the point I made earlier, that my job is about two numbers, earnings, multiples, cash flows, discount rates. If you've got cash flows growing at, with a, a, a link to that nominal GDP growth, you have to have your discount rate linked to a risk-free rate that's equivalent to it. 
otherwise your, your, your numerator and denominator are sort of getting out of whack. And uh, I use the terminology, and we think this is certainly the case for some businesses in the consumer staples sector. So for our global equity franchise strategy, most people when they think about the types of businesses we invest in with large economic modes, stable, predictable operating performance, high margins, uh, market leading positions, they gravitate towards those consumer staple businesses. Um, we can only find one in the world today that we think offers us decent valuation upside and, that, and that's Anheuser-Busch. Um, all of the other consumer staple businesses like Unilever, Colgate Palmolive, fantastic businesses, but are just really expensive when we apply our valuation framework. And what we think the market's doing, and we think the market might be doing this for quite a few sectors around the globe, is they're breaking that golden rule. So they're saying, look, the world is going to have lower risk-free rates. It's going to have lower interest rates for longer. And so I'm happy to have a lower discount rate. But then they believe that the trend growth rates will continue and that markets, yeah, they've grown it for the last 10, 15 years at 5 6% per annum. So they'll continue at 5 6% per annum. But I'll use a risk-free rate that's 2 or 3%. And, and in that world, if you just build a simple little Excel model, you end up with, if you use the terminology from the, the Terminator movies, with Shield Corp, you know, the one company that owns everything and controls the world, because essentially that's what you're, you're, you're saying. You've got a business that continues to grow above what you're saying the general economy is growing at. And, and, and that, just, that, that, that just can't hold in the long run. Well, I mean, that, that's one of the first things that you learn when you're studying discounted cash flow valuations. Your growth rate can't be higher than your discount rate. And so what you're saying here, if I'm understanding correctly, is that basically we're seeing that, but at a much broader scale. So people aren't properly being compensated for the risk that they're taking when they're, when they're making an investment. The cash flows, they might be predicting fine, but the actual, the amount that they're they're asking to be paid for the risk they're taking is is not high enough. Is that is that correct? Correct. And, and so so that's one. So there's two scenarios that you can play out. Either either a if you believe that the world is going to return to trend sort of growth rates and there, and that you know generally speaking the economy will remain relatively healthy, then that's fine. But you've got to use a higher discount rate. You've got to assume that your risk free rate and your nominal GDP growth rate are aligned. So you're aligning cash flows with discount rates. Now, if you believe that the world is a negative place and that interest rates are going to stay lower for longer and permanently lower in, in the long run, so we've, you know, the world has, um, to use a, a terminology, a, a, a sort of a contracted Japanese disease, well, then the growth rate's lower as well. And, 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 that's, and that's an equally plausible scenario, but at least you've linked your numerator and denominator, you've linked your cash flow growth with your discount rate you've, in both of those scenarios. And what, I, what we think the market is doing is believing that interest rates will remain low, but the trend growth rates will con the growth will be higher. And that's, and that's just fundamentally wrong. They think they can have their cake and eat it too. <laughs> Correct. They, people, there's no such thing as a free lunch in life, and that's exactly what people that we think are, are implying. Well, look, we've got a little bit off track here. So let's just circle back. We were talking before about some of the things that have served you really well across both the listed infrastructure and broader equities. But I'm curious, conversely, what some of the differences might be. Is there anything that you've learned or applied investing in one area that's tripped you up when you've tried to apply it elsewhere? I mean, valuation, as I said, is around those two numbers, sustainable earnings and, 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 and the, the right multiple that you put to it or cash flows and the right discount rate. So as long as you come back to those two basic core principles, it, it should hold you, you well in steed. I mean, clearly, infrastructure with its natural monopoly base are businesses that, you know, really, um, as a former uh, boss used to say to me, the drover's dog can run them. Um, in, in other words, they run themselves, they plod along, they do what they do. Um, and they're, and they're so 
you can fall into the trap of believing that everything in life is just like the beautiful Sydney Harbour Bridge and that traffic just continues to grow year in, year out until it hits capacity and that's the only thing that stops it. You know, there's no economic cycles. There's, there's, there's nothing that can distort that, that beautiful picture. Understanding that, you know, that, that, that is not always the case is, is, is one of the, the clear, not everything is a, is a monopolistic toll road like the Harbour Bridge is. Uh, the other the other issue to to really worry about, and this is particularly the case with predictable, boring assets that have very large margins and very safe businesses, is that bankers love to lend the money, and if management isn't cautious around uh, around those issues, you can find yourself in a uh, the predicament where they are actually over leveraged, and debt becomes a massive problem. Um, and so I think the learnings of the global financial crisis, there were always things that we were always concerned about in terms of leverage, but um, I think the global financial crisis really did point that and make, our, uh, make us become far more pointed in, in, in our, in our uh, assessment of, of, of levels of indebtedness. So that's something that I'm, I'm now uh, overly cautious, more cautious about than I, I had been previously, and I think uh, rightly so. Um, because it doesn't matter how good a business you've got or how low the operating risk of the business is, you can always over leverage and over uh, over borrow, um, and that and that creates you know we don't buy assets, we buy equities. So we, you know the the debt comes out first, um, and so don't lose sight of uh, just you know the the mountain of debt that might be there. Well, that of course leads us. You know, you're talking about the GFC there. There's been discussion a lot recently of possible recessions again. It's been a long time now since the GFC. And regardless of whether it's true or not, I think that's an issue that's been discussed very widely elsewhere. But I'm more curious as to how you think equities, uh, or more specifically global listed infrastructure equities, might perform in a recessionary environment. I know last time during the GFC, there were a lot of problems with individual assets, as you were saying, being over leveraged. But I don't know if that's still the case or if there's other issues there. It seems to me that they're fairly defensive in terms of their, their cash flows. So is, is kind of a, it's kind of a double-edged sword there, I guess. So in the event of a US recession or a global recession, how do you think those listed infrastructure securities go? Yeah, look, it's a really good question, and it's the it's the one that if you know, something worries me at night, it's 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 certainly it's certainly that. Um, and and moreover, the 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 philosophy and the belief that um, what has attracted people to investing in infrastructure is the the surety of of its of its asset class performance, and that if you do get a recession, it should defend on the downside. Now. The global financial crisis was a unique recession in many ways because it, rather than the, the economy um, uh, so, sort of weakening and, 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 and interest rate policy uh, accommodating uh, and trying to uh, try and save the economy, if you want, like, um, like uh, is happening in, in, in Europe and has been happening ever since, um, it was it, it was orchestrated by a financial it was a financial crisis and so people essentially looked at infrastructure and went these assets are highly leveraged therefore they're going to fail um, and so what you had happened in the global financial crisis is just to compare and contrast the average industrial company with an infrastructure stock um, or an infrastructure index you had the index itself for infrastructure falling around about 40%, uh, 30%, I should say. You had the global equity markets falling about uh, about 50%. Um, so they didn't fall quite as much. But what was interesting was that uh, the earnings of the average industrial company fell 40%. So market marked down, but earnings fell uh, a, a slightly more than what the index fell. And so people were acknowledging, okay, yes, this is a difficult time, but times will get better and the earnings will improve and I shouldn't you know, just mark down one-for-one one earnings with my multiple. In infrastructure, the earnings didn't move at all. I mean, you had a couple of companies that went through financial crises, the, the Babcock and Browns that were basically businesses that we 
looked at and said this is a uh, this is a disaster waiting to happen. So we we were never investors in the, in that particular that particular business. And so, but the, the the companies that we had in our investable universe of infrastructure opportunities, their earnings fell five percent, but the market had completely just uh, marked down the equity because they were worried they weren't going to be achieved debt financing. And nothing could be further from the truth. If bankers are confronted with a situation of loaning to a widget manufacturer or loaning to a monopolistic regulated utility or a toll road or an airport, they're going to be far more inclined to give to those natural monopoly, uh, you know, essential service-based infrastructure assets than they are to you know, the average industrial company just because the business itself is inherently more predictable and has less operating risk. And therefore, you're more likely as a banker to get your money back. Let's keep it very simple. Um, so, so I think that was the, the situation that faced us in the global financial crisis. Now, if you look at, look at the history of infrastructure investing prior to that, you always saw that during um, recessions, they, they outperformed. And, and that makes sense. You've got a business that's more predictable. Investors will gravitate to those assets in times of flight. The, the situation we have today is, is similar. I would argue that if, if you do have a recession, infrastructure would be a safe haven investment in that environment. The problem I have is that it's not the value you're, you're, you're seeking. It's the price you pay for it today that's, that's, that troubles me. So if I look at, and you specifically said the United States, we, we, our fund um, in infrastructure has very little exposure to US utilities. Um, and that's because we believe that at the moment they are um, overachieving in terms of what regulators are allowing them in terms of returns versus what the market's capitalizing. It's, it's the great breaking of the golden rule in in, in, in an absolute full sector sense. And the market has, has found itself um, really believing, in our opinion, that you can have your cake and eat it, that regulators will say, actually, a 10% return on a, is allowable for that business in the long run. And the, the, but markets are saying, well, that's, a, that's fantastic because in bond yields are only 2 or 3%. That's what I'll assume long term. Now, if you assume a 2 or 3% bond yield long term, regulators will assume a lower allowed return uh, because that basically is allowing owners of infrastructure assets to, to uh, over-earn relative to the risk that they face. And so we're, we're negative on US, on, on US utilities, but I, I would say in the early stages of a recession, if it was to occur, um, all infrastructure assets will be seen as safe havens and then it will only be um, as, as investors re, refresh their ideas that you'll, you'll start to see the nuances play out. So you're saying that it's not just that, the, that they're over-earning, but they're also overvalued based on those higher earnings too. Is that right? Correct. So they've got yeah, the, yeah. the potential double whammy from a, a, a valuation perspective of having you know, the, both the earnings come down and then the multiple that's applied to those earnings come down also. Yes, that's what we think. I mean, you know, tr traditionally US utilities have traded 12, 13 times earnings. They're now 17. They've come down from their peak of 19, but they're on 17 times earnings. Why? Because they're paying you a 3 4% dividend yield and the market says that looks pretty good relative to a 1% bond, 1 to 2% bond yield. But that's fine, except if you believe that interest rates will stay low, ultimately regulators in the US, we believe, will have to cut the allowed returns because at the moment, you know, when you speak to those US regulators, they're still thinking through the mindset of a 5% long-term US bond yield. And that's why they think a 10% return on equity is fair. And in a world where bond yields in the US are 5%, a 10% return on equity as allowed return for regulated assets is fair. It's, it's all about fairness. And at the moment, if you think about a pendulum, um, asset owners are, are winning and consumers are losing. And I, we think that's got to come back into balance. Either bond yields stay lower and return on equities come down, or bond yields go up and return on equities stay where they are. Ultimately, 12, 13 times earnings is about the right multiple you would pay for a US utility and not 17 times or more. 
Well, you might have actually just given us a little bit of insight as to the answer to my next question, to be honest. But I was looking over the the portfolio of your global listed infrastructure fund. And this is something I often do before, you know, before an interview, just to, to, to see how people invest and and get a bit of insight into their into their thinking. One of the things that really stood out to me, though, was the average key metrics of your fund are markedly different to the index. Now, there's usually a few points difference here or there for, for most funds when you look at it. So that there's looking at the price to earnings ratio, price to book ratio, return on ac- equity, cash flow yield, just some basic key metrics. Generally, most of the time when I look at something, um, they're, they're pretty close, a few percentage points or a few multiple points here or there. Um, but there was quite a big difference with your fund. So I'm curious... Why is that difference so large? Hmm. Yeah, it, look, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you've taken the time to, to have a look at the, at the financial metrics of the fund. They're very pleasing. And you've, you've highlighted the, the key differences today. I mean, we're not out there to be different for the sake of being different. Let me make that point clear at the, at the outset. Um, our, our philosophy is all around uh, trying to achieve a return of inflation plus uh, 5% for our investors over rolling five-year periods. So think of it in really simple terms. If you expect normal equities to do 10, in that world you would expect bonds to do five. We want to sit in the middle, seven or eight percent. Now, to achieve that sort of return today, um, out of our universe of potentially around 95 investment opportunities, we think fulfill the criteria of what we call preferred infrastructure. So these are monopolistic infrastructure assets with inflation protection attributes, high margins, sustainable uh, leverage and gearing models in developed world economies where you have um, uh, you know, a transparent regulatory structure. So the types of safe, high quality infrastructure assets that people would gravitate towards normally. We think there's only 95 of those in the globe that you would want to own at any one time. Today, you only want to own 25 of them at the absolute most because the vast majority, we believe, are expensive and about half of our investable universe is in North America and all of those, uh, we struggle to find any value in North America outside of a few of the monopolistic North American railroad companies you know the North American utilities the pipeline businesses we think are very expensive and that's what the index has you know close to half of its money invested in um, and we have virtually well, in fact we have none in, our, in North American or Canadian utilities and so that's the biggest difference um, now what does that mean we own um, so we find a lot of value today in continental Europe. Um, so notwithstanding fears regarding Brexit, notwithstanding fears regarding you know the the, the low levels of GDP growth um, that have come out of uh, out of continental Europe, we see um, in certain uh, selective uh, natural uh, monopoly uh, and essential service assets in those particular geographies, some really good value opportunities. Um, uh, and then we also see uh, the occasional one uh, in, in Australia and Asia, but they are few and far between. It's a, our, our view is today, if you were to naively simply say, look, there's 100 infrastructure stocks out there, they're all pretty safe. I, I think they're all, they, they all look like fair long-term businesses and natural monopolies and they tick all my boxes i'm just going to buy one percent in each of them and so let's say you did that but completely valuation agnostic yeah completely valuation agnostic we think you'll lose somewhere between 15 and 20 percent per annum over the next three years wow that's a big (laughs) it's the market is expensive and particular markets are generally expensive in our view but particularly so in certain pockets and sectors and i mentioned consumer staples for our broader global equity and i think in 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 the utility space particularly north american utilities we find them uh, very expensive and so but you know 
where could we be wrong? I mean, you know, heroic assumptions are not part of our game. If in the US, um, if 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 you're a if you own and manage a US utility and and you're spending your time, you know, just sort of ticking all the boxes and and making the business turn over okay, it, it'll all run okay until the moment comes that you have to go back to the regulator and say, look, I need a I need some I need my rates reviewed. Um, we haven't seen you for five years. There's no compulsion, unlike in Australia, where every five years they must talk to the regulator and the regulator then says, okay, how much is your capex? How much is your, are you going to spend to maintain the network? Fine. And they all agree it and they move along and, and, that, and that happens every five years in Australia, in Europe and in the UK. In the US, it's, it's more of a, well, when I need to see you, I'll come and see you. And in some of the low growth states in the southern parts of America, they may not have gone in for a a regulatory decision for more than a decade. And that's why they've been able to um, hold these very high returns, even though rates have been very low, because nothing's changed for them for over a decade. If they're not having to go back and, and seek a, a, a different uh, outcome, um, then they've, they've just literally said, oh, we'll, we'll sit on our hands and, and not do anything because they're scared of what the outcome will be. So they could potentially, rather than just a sudden mispricing by going back to the regulators and getting a review, it's possible that this drags out over a really long time, absent any external shocks, until the point that those additional returns basically just get inflated away. That's exactly right, and that's exactly and that's exactly. Right. And so we've been we've been saying that US has looked expensive for us for quite a number of years, you know, five plus years. Um, and you know, frankly, in that five plus years, they've continued to be expensive and got modestly more expensive. But you know, it, it, for our the way we try and manage money is to not guess what regulators might do in the next six, 12, 18 months, three years. It's to say, in the long run, if I'm, and, and this is the way we really think, um, is, is essentially to say, what would I do if the market shut down for five years? What would I want to own and how would I behave and what investments would I want in my portfolio? And so, because what we're not trying to do is predict how we can trade in and out of certain positions on a weekly or monthly or quarterly basis. We're really saying, I've got some capital, I want to invest that capital today. And if I assume that markets close down for five years, what stocks would I want to own? And they're the ones we own in our portfolio because we think, you know, we, we've taken a view on where the long-term value is. And if in that five-year journey, markets remain open and markets give us the opportunity to buy more stock because the share price has um, fallen slightly on short-term news, or someone believes in the thesis that we have and markets have appreciated that and the market price has gone up, we can sell it. But the, the basic framework is I want to buy build a portfolio that I'm prepared to own for five years, not second guess what might happen in two or three months and trade ahead of that. That's, you know, we, we leave that up for much smarter people than ourselves. <laughs> well, um, you should be in a very good position to answer my final question then, because I'm going to ask you exactly that at the end of the interview. <laughs> um, look, I wanted to talk a bit about selling, but let's take a step back from just focusing on the global listed infrastructure. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more broadly here um, across both the, you know, the domestic, global, and just talk a little bit about strategy and process. So certainly in the media a lot and on Livewire, there's a lot of talk about, you know, whether you should buy this or buy that, what to buy, what to buy. One thing that doesn't get covered off as often is what to sell, when to sell it, mm -hmm. how to sell it. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on what are typically some of the things that you that might make you sell a position. If you could give us maybe two or three things that, uh, that would typically trigger you to want to exit something that you've been holding. Okay, so it, it's probably um, important just to touch on what our investment process is. So as a group of analysts, we sit down, we each have our stock research responsibilities, which, you know, we... And 80% of my day is literally spent in front of a computer coming up with those two numbers, an earnings and a multiple or a cash flow and a discount rate. And then I share that thought, if you want, in a, in a formalized Excel spreadsheet with a, a, a written prose with my peers. And we 
then meet once a week where we appraise each other's work and, and argue the you know the assumptions that have been made and, and, and arrive at a collectively a value that we have for each individual stock that sits in either the Australian equity uh, universe, our global listed infrastructure universe or our global equity franchise universe. And what we then do is to say, okay, well, let's let's concentrate on a three to five year view, and we assume that the stock will all stocks will trade at their intrinsic value in three or five years. You've got the market price that you know today, and the dividend that you'll pick up on the way through, and it creates an IRR, and you just rank them from the cheapest, um, which ends up being on the left hand side of our rank, uh, to the most expensive on the right hand side of the rank. And then if you rank them and you look at that, you can see where we see value opportunities presenting themselves and where they're not. So our sell discipline is, is really quite strict because ultimately uh, once we've agreed on the valuation of that stock and we've taken into account all of the issues that you and I've spoken about, Patrick, through, throughout our, our conversation here, it really comes down to that value. And then once the share price appreciates and, and the difference between our intrinsic value and, the, and that share price narrows and so the upside potential reduces, then clearly something else has happened somewhere else in the world that's enabled another stock that's fallen in price so that the value opportunity has gotten greater and we'll just rotate capital out of the one that's gone up into the one that's gone down and that's and that's so that is 80% of our day and hopefully if, if we get everything right that's a hundred percent of our investment decisions you know <laughs> basically you've arrived at your evaluation nothing's changed the market's finally woken up to the value that you see and you've exited that stock and you've now got another opportunity to redeploy that capital elsewhere. Life's not that simple. You then have what goes wrong. And in essence, we're constantly looking at where those situations can go wrong and where we tend, and in, in recent times, one of the ones we're most conscious of, particularly when we're talking about the predictable, forecastable businesses that we have in our now, as the bedrock of our infrastructure portfolio or our global equity franchise portfolio, these are you know the best infrastructure companies or the highest quality businesses in our in our equity franchise portfolio in the world. And what distorts that more than anything else is decisions by management, where they have entered into a new market or made an acquisition that diversifies the business, doesn't diversify it, diversifies it, um, and our valuation assumptions change around that. Um, that's where, we, that, that, that's where we, we're constantly reassessing our valuation. And if I think about our global equity franchise business, the other issue that we are often confronted with, and you asked a question earlier on, what do I learn differently about general equities to infrastructure? In, in infrastructure, your economic moat is permanent. And what I mean by that is no one's going to think of a new way to, to move around a city. You know, you're either going to use a car, a train um, or, or the bus. And so, you know, transport moves in a certain way. And so toll roads are very predictable. You know, electricity networks are very predictable as are gas networks. Um, now, the price that you pay for electricity and for gas can move around, but the actual regulated network itself is a predictable business with very little chance of someone coming and stealing your lunch, you know, a new entrant or taking taking some of that away from you. In a competitive business, no matter how good your market share is, most businesses aren't monopolies. And so therefore they can be subjected to competitive pressures. And so that's something that we, we spend a lot of time assessing the risk that the incumbent players will lose share to new market entrants. Uh, and if I think back three or four years now, where we were able to make quite a lot of money for our global equity franchise investors was we had a large position, almost 30% of the portfolio, in what could be classified as old school tech. So these are businesses like Microsoft, Oracle, um, Visa and MasterCard and, and the like, SAP for another one, where the market was sort of saying, here's the cloud, Here's this thing called the cloud, okay? That clearly means everything's gonna change and the incumbent business that has got, you know, a legacy of operations, of, of business goodwill, of customers that have been happy with them for three or four decades or longer in some cases, that's all gonna disappear and we're all gonna do something different on the cloud, in inverted commas. Well, sort of we looked at that and thought, well, 
okay, that's that's an interesting scenario of how the, the world will diametrically change overnight. Our view was, well, these incumbent legacy operators with customer bases that number into the millions, surely they have as much to gain from transitioning from the cloud as they do fear from the threat of it. And when we sat down and looked at our valuations and said, actually, the market's thrown the baby out with the bathwater here, we can assume that, yes, there's an opportunity, but we're not having to pay for it, then essentially we thought there was it was an asymmetrical risk equation, as we call it, which is the downside seemed considerably less than what the potential for upside was. And so we have profited on that for the last two to three years in that portfolio. Um, and so that's that's some of the learnings that we've had and um, around markets in particular in more recent times. Well, as a value investor, you must come across value traps fairly regularly, I imagine. How do you go about sorting the genuine value opportunities from those dreaded value traps? Yeah, it's a really it's it's an interesting one. And as a value manager, that's that's what you're constantly confronted with when you when you look at positions that you've taken in in various companies. One of the ways we've tried to solve for that with our global equity franchise portfolio is is to remain strong to our inherent value traits and 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 what is our overriding value philosophies, but to hunt in a universe of more predictable businesses. And I've spoken a lot about predictability here. And what you, the value traps, what you tend to find is that you think you're being conservative on your assumptions around a business, around structural change, around um, how, how low the margins could possibly go. And you think you're being conservative and you do all of your fundamental analysis and then, and then it's just not low enough. And the value trap you fall into is that you're trimming your valuation, but the share price keeps moving f- further. And so you still think there's upside, but you know you you roll forward another three to four months or quarter or a year, and your valuation's gone down further. But you, but the share price has fallen even further, and so you still think there's upside there. In our global equity franchise strategy, we're investing only in businesses where we believe we have that predictability of earnings. And structural change is something that we take incredibly seriously. And we utilize the broader uh, research capabilities of Lazard outside of our own investment team to try and augment uh, and complement, if you want, our, our thesis around each individual name. And, We've had situations where, um, for instance, and I'll, I'll give the example. We, we were very seriously looking at um, taking a position in the UK uh, supermarket chain, Tesco. And we, we saw um, the number one player leading in that market, 30,000, 35,000 SKUs. It's the dominant um, uh, you know, the supermarket chain in the, in the United Kingdom. And we thought, okay, this is a business that, that's had a few stumbles, it's had a few falters, but it, it looked like a genuine value opportunity. And you know, so a, as a team, that was our conclusion. We then went out to our, uh, the, the global sector specialist who sits in our office in, in, in London, sits outside of the team, but works within Lazard. And we spoke to Nathan Cockrell, 25 years retail experience in the UK presented our thesis to him and said, well, what do you think? And basically said, well, that's great, but that was the story five years ago. And in fact, what you think is its competitive advantage, the fact that it's got this scale, it's, it's, its number of SKUs, is exactly the reason that it's in trouble today. Because people had traded down during the global financial crisis or the UK recession to Aldi or Lidl. And you know, you've you've traditionally gone to Tesco, you've wandered down the road to Aldi and you've you know, convinced yourself now that actually the cornflakes aren't too bad. Um, the toilet paper isn't rough um, and you can buy this stuff and it actually saves you a few dollars. Um, whereas the other side, of course, was that you know, in the take-home meal market, Waitrose and Marks and Spencers had, had offered a, a whole new offering to people in that higher-end um, sort of luxury but higher-end consumer staples take-home meal market. And so Tesco was ca- kind of caught in the middle. It was being attacked above by Waitrose and Marks and Spencers and attacked below by Little and, and, uh, and Aldi. And it found itself that its, it's, it's sheer scale was no longer its advantage, but was actually its disadvantage. 
And so that was a, a thankfully a trap that we didn't fall into. Um, Nathan made us reassess our thesis around that business and we, we never actually made that investment in Tesco and it's actually now a stock that we've removed from our investable universe because we no longer believe it has the inherent characteristics we want from a, a global equity franchise name. Um, so that, that, you know, we think we've solved for part of that risk, uh, that structural change risk by saying if it's no longer a business of a certain standard quality meets our criteria, no matter how cheap it is and how attractive it might be in terms of valuation, we won't consider it for investment in our in our strategy. And I think that making that break, um, so you know, looking for quality and then value, not reversing it around, not, not finding value and then believing that there's quality there, I think is a really important step. And it's something that we're blessed with in global equity franchise because, you know, you've got hundreds of thousands of potential businesses. There's you know, 10,000 businesses listed around the world that we could look at today. And we've only, we only picked 250 of them for that strategy that we think meet the predictability criteria. And so, you know, to, to just extend on that a little bit, Amazon could be a wonderful business. Uh, on 100 times earnings, people are telling you it's clearly got something special, but it doesn't fulfill the criteria we want as an economic franchise. It's not predictable. It, it, it's operating in six disparately different businesses that you have very little insight into in terms of understanding how much earnings are coming out of AWS versus their, their online offering. And it's taking on some of the biggest competitors in those particular segments in the world. Now, look, it could win. And this could be a very famous podcast because I was the guy that told you he couldn't value Amazon and didn't understand it. But, you know, for us, it's not an investment problem that we want to solve. We're into solving simple investment problems with predictable businesses that we think we can get a real handle on the valuation so we can make really strong investment calls and happy to own big chunks of the portfolio in, in one individual name if we think it's warranted. We don't have to have a view on Amazon, so we don't. We, we, we find banks and insurers difficult to value, so in our global equity franchise strategy, we don't consider them. So you know, it, it really is a luxury as an investor to say, actually, I don't have to have a view. I'd rather play in a, in, a, in, a, in a realm and try and solve problems that I think are easier to solve and therefore I've got more of a chance of being right than to try and be heroic around Amazon and say, yes, a uh, hundred times earnings makes perfect sense because the stock will continue, the business will continue to grow and take over the world one day. It's a tough investment call. <laughs> I don't think you'd be the first value investor to decide to sit out that one. In fact, I don't think you'd even be the first value investor on, on the show who's uh, decided to sit that <laughs> one out. <laughs> um, but look, that concludes the main section of the interview. I do have three favorite questions that I like to ask every guest. So I'll just jump into those now. Could you share something with us that you've read recently? It could be either a book, an article, or a piece of research that really impressed you or you found really interesting or really blew you away. Um, look, if I can answer this question outside of, uh, outside of you know, finance or investing. Yeah, please I do. Probably, I, I was watching a podcast, oh, sorry, listening to a podcast the other day from someone who I think is an absolute inspirational man. His name's Maya Chang. He runs a program called Savannah Pride, which operates in, in Blacktown in, in Western Sydney. And his, his mantra is essentially taking at-risk youth um, and giving them something to do. So he uses basketball as the conduit by which he encourages uh Traditionally, South Sudanese, which is where he's from, but uh, he's not—he's not—he's um, agnostic as to background. Um, he, he's taking these at-risk youth from Blacktown and, and and using basketball as the conduit to try and create a structure around their lives. And um, so the program is really simple: the the kids leave high school, they head off to the Blacktown Police Citizens Youth Club, they sit down for an hour, they do homework with Mayer or, or one, of his, uh, one of his tutors and, and he helps them with their homework and tries and improves their grades and then they play basketball 
and it's a fantastic program. He's a an unbelievable individual. They've got, uh, you know, the successes are they have uh, a number of players now in the NBA in America. They've got some guys playing uh, college ball with scholarships in the United States and, and here in Australia. Um, but it's what he's doing at the grassroots out there that I found incredibly impressive. And um, uh, it's it, it really is something that I found inspirational, basically, what he does. I think he's a, he's a better person than I am for, for the work that he's giving and for what he's doing to the community out there. And it's something that we be, I, my wife and I have become involved with recently. So uh, I think that's probably the most inspirational thing I've read, seen or done for the last, well, at least 12 months. Many a life has been changed for the better through sport. No doubt about mm-hmm. that. I'll grab a link from you to that podcast if it's okay, and we'll put it up in the uh, in the text version of this wire, so that listeners can access it if they want to check it out. Sure, we'll do absolutely. If you could go back in time to when you were finishing school or university and give yourself just one piece of investing advice, what would it be? Uh, in terms of investing advice, I'd probably just be more patient and more patient in general uh, around things. So um, I think if I broaden the question to, you know, life's lessons, I think I've got a, uh, I've, I've got a diagram. It's a Venn diagram I've put on my, on my desk at work and it's got two circles and one says what you, what matters and what you can control. And it says focus on the area where those two points intersect. I think that's, that's probably the, mo- the best investment advice I could give myself and the best life advice. Um, yeah, having you know, having said that, what would I change? I don't think I'd change anything. I've been pretty lucky in my life. I married my childhood sweetheart. I spent 25 years working for the same organisation or thereabouts. You know, I, I pretty much you know you can tweeter at the edges, but you know I'm pretty happy with where things, how things have worked out, and hopefully they'll continue to to be this happy for the next 25, 30 years of my life. Here's hoping. Before I ask this last question, I always like to insert a little bit of a disclaimer. Don't try this at home. We're not actually suggesting to anyone that they go out there, take all of their money and put it into a single stock and forget about it for five years. This is supposed to be a bit of an exercise in long-term thinking and, of course, a little bit of fun. So with that being said, if markets were going to close for the next five years, starting from tomorrow, and you could only own shares in one company, what would it be? Well, as I sort of alluded to earlier in that conversation, this is what we try and do when we build the portfolio. So we've got a five-year view. We try and buy a portfolio of generally concentrated down to 25 or 50 individual stocks. Um, So, you know, if I was to very simply say, what is the stock at the top of our rank and which one is it? It would have to be IGT, which is uh, International Gaming Technology, uh, which everyone says is still the world's largest poker machine manufacturer, which it is, but that is only 15% of the business. It's actually the world's largest operator of regulated and concessioned lotteries, which is an incredibly predictable business and certainly deserves to be priced on more than seven or eight times EBIT, which is where it's currently trading. So I'd be happy buying IGT. We own it in the portfolio. It's one of our largest holdings, and I'd be happy to own that for five years and put it in the bottom drawer and pull it out in five years' time. And hopefully the market will have woken up to the fact it doesn't just make poker machines. It generates lots of beautiful cash off a lottery business. Great. Well, Warren, thanks so much for coming on the show today and sharing your time and your thoughts with us. Pat, always a pleasure. And yeah, thank you again for the opportunity.